We have been talking about idolatry. What is idolatry at its very heart? Uh, defining it and, and thinking about it, examining our lives and our hearts, saying, am I guilty in any way of thinking about things and treating things as if they were gods in a sense? But I hope that we don't leave this conversation simply intellectual, to just think about it and maybe even admit, yes, we all struggle with this. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, I see this reality in my life. I hope that we take the next step and that our lives are transformed so that we truly worship differently. We live differently. It's not enough to say, yes, I have a problem with that, or yes, I struggle with that. The question becomes, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to change what's wrong in your life? So we've been talking about things like this, that idolatry is feeling about something or some person the way we should only feel about God. Or idolatry is magnifying a created thing and minimizing God. Or idolatry is turning a good thing, a created thing, something God created or something man created, and making that thing an ultimate thing. Here's what we need to keep in mind, that the more we love something, the more we love something, the more likely we are to idolize it. The greater something seems to be to us, the more we enjoy it, the more passionate we are about it, the more likely we are to idolize it. So we've taken some some issues, some things in our life and looked at those things, not because those are the only things that we can idolize, but those are the things that we love the very most or we have a tendency to love the very most. And when we love something so dearly, we're going to be tempted to worship it for that to become an ultimate thing in our life. So last week we talked about relationships. Relationships are great and wonderful and God created, just like everything else in this world, God created them. He meant for them to be enjoyed. He meant for them to be treasured. But we talked about how dangerous it can be when our relationships become ultimate things. Now, if you need more convincing than what we did last week, you might look at chapters like Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says... That in order to become his disciple, that you have to, and here's a strong word, hate, hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, even your own life. Now, obviously, we're supposed to love those people, right? So in what way could Jesus say that in order to be his disciple, we have to hate everything in our life, including the people in our life? I think what Jesus was saying was that when you become his disciple... You need to be prepared to give up anything else. Because there were people in that time and in this time that if they followed Jesus, the people in their life were going to say, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. In other words, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to be prepared to say to everybody in our life, don't come between me and Jesus. Because if I have to choose between you and Jesus, I'm going to choose Jesus every time. That's what it is to live a life where God is our only ultimate thing. God is what makes life worth living. And so when we look at scripture, we see that God is often talked about in those relational terms, that God is talked about as 
father, that Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, that, that we can even be friends with God. And so God needs to be not only our most important relationship, but our only ultimate relationship. But scripture not only talks about God in relational terms like that, scripture also talks about God in political terms as well. So God is king and his people aren't just his children, but they are citizens of his kingdom. So scripture puts God in the context of politics in a sense. And so we need to understand that God needs to be our ultimate one that we trust, that we fear, and that we swear allegiance to. Now, nations politics and the things that revolve around nations and kingdoms, they're good things, right? We're not here. Don't, don't sit there and say, well, Wes, you're just bashing our country or you're bashing politics or you're bashing... No, 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 stop. It's just like everything else in this world. They may be good things, but we need to be very careful about good things, things that we love. Here's some of the benefits of nations. One thing is safety, isn't it? I mean, living in a nation, it provides a certain amount of safety and security where we have people to defend us, where it's not just every family for themselves or every individual for themselves. The world has seen times and places where that's been the case, and it's obviously been very dangerous when there aren't nations and borders and things, people to protect one another. Uh, things like commerce, trade, money, finances, those things make life a whole lot more convenient. Transportation, roads, and, and boats, and airplanes, and trains, and all of these things make life much easier. Communication, to have languages where we can know what each other are saying so that we can write letters to one another, postal services, and now internet, and getting back and forth, and messages to and from places. So nations certainly make life safer, they make life more enjoyable. They, 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 they're very comfortable to live in comparatively, right? Than without nations. But here's the danger. When we look at that and we say that's a good thing and then it becomes an ultimate thing and we say this is what makes life worth living. This is my ultimate identity is found in this. I'm going to live and breathe and sleep and eat and, and die this. This is everything to me. When a nation is idolized, sometimes the results can be pride can be nationalism, where we think that we are better than other people, wars of aggression, racism, genocide, all kinds of horrible atrocities have been the result all over the world, throughout all time, when people believe that the glory of their nation, the glory of their empire, the glory of their kingdom is an ultimate thing. And throughout all time, peoples have personified and deified different elements of their politics. And they have carved statues and they have lifted things up and they have praised and they have worshipped the things of their kingdom, their empire, their nation, and these are some of the results. Consider how easy it is for things like political ideals. Democracy. I like that. I think that's a good idea, right? I like it. I like democracy. I think that's a good idea. I like that better than I like tyranny, right? I mean, that's that's an ideal that I, that I like. 
I think it's a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. I, I like freedom. I like liberty. I think those are good things, but when they become idolized, they can become ultimate things. Political activism can so easily become like religious practice. Political buildings can become temples or cathedrals. Political leaders can become anointed ones, saviors, messiahs. Patriotic songs can become songs of praise. Think about how easy it is to feel about your nation and the things revolving around your nation with the same kind of awe and the same kind of devotion that you should only feel for God. It's not wrong to love your country, just like it's not wrong to love your children or your wife. It's not wrong to to love Mount Everest or the Grand Canyon or to look at these things and say they're good and they're beautiful and they're enjoyable. But it is wrong when you idolize them and when you make them ultimate things. And if history teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that there is a thin line between patriotism and idolatry. And we have to be so very careful about those things. I think the book of Isaiah is going to help us to kind of walk through this and wade through this. Because maybe you're thinking, Wes, I don't know, you're pushing the envelope. You told us in the beginning, politics and religion. But, But listen, church, this is so important. And it's not just us and our time and place. It's been God's people throughout history that have struggled with this. You see, God's people in the Old Testament started with with Abraham, really, didn't it? And God makes promises to Abraham, and he says, your descendants I'm going to take, and I'm going to make them into a a kingdom, right? And then when, when Abraham's people multiply, and they are brought out of the land of Egypt, and they're brought to the promised land, they're given this place, and they're given a kingdom. Well, because of their sin... They were never really what they were supposed to be. They never really grasped and they never really took advantage of what they could have been had they been faithful and obedient. And instead, they split the kingdom in two. Remember, so you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Isaiah lives in a time period where he has seen the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed by the Assyrians. So, Israel lives in this little corner of the world, and on one side they've got a huge empire like Egypt, and then there's Assyria, and Babylon is coming along, and it's terrifying. And Isaiah lives in a time where the northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed, the southern kingdom of Israel is on the brink of destruction, several cities have been destroyed by the Assyrians, and the temptation is to fear and or to put your trust in these Nations And God keeps telling his people, I'm going to deal with you and I'm going to deal with your sin. But listen, trust me. Wait for me. Put your trust in me. Don't trust in nations or in kingdoms or in horses or in chariots or in idols or in any other created thing. Put your trust in me. And that message is as relevant now to the new Israel, to God's people, the church, who aren't living in one geographic location, but are spread out throughout all the world and find themselves in the midst of political turmoil oftentimes, don't we? And the temptation to put our trust in when we're afraid and things are uncertain, 
to put our trust in man-made things or even God-made things is a very real temptation, but the results will be destructive spiritually, emotionally, and in many other ways. Look at Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. God says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? You see, the the people of Israel, the people of Judah were so tempted to go down to Egypt and make an alliance and say, Pharaoh will protect us. Pharaoh will deliver us. Pharaoh will provide for us. Verse 3, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Look at chapter 31, next chapter, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians, listen to this, the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Do we, as God's new Israel, as the people of God today, who are tempted to put all of our hopes and all of our trust in kingdoms and in militaries and in politicians and in leaders and to fall down and give our ultimate, it's not wrong to give allegiance to necessarily, but give our ultimate trust and allegiance to the kingdoms of this earth. Do we need to be reminded of this? that they are man, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying like a lion, you know, when a lion gets something, he's got his prey and and, and he's got it there. He protects it, doesn't he? He said, this is mine. You better back off. Kind of way I was with my sisters at the dinner table, right? I mean, you know, I, I got this. It's mine. You better not mess with it. It doesn't matter how many shepherds come out and shake their staff or throw their stones. He's a lion and he's going to fight for what's his. And so God is saying, that's the way I am with Jerusalem. That's the way I am with Zion. That's the way I am with my people. You're my people. Trust me. I'm the lion. I will protect you. Do we need to be reminded of that today, church? Do we need to be reminded that we are the people of the Lion of Judah? Why do we have anything to fear with the things of man? Our God, our God has promised to raise us from the dead. What can man do to us? 
Verse 5, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which his hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. If you know the story, you know that after Assyria is devouring everything in its path, it gets right up to the gates of Jerusalem and God defeats them all by himself. And they run away afraid, right? And eventually Assyria is destroyed by by Babylon. God is telling his people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It doesn't matter the turmoil that's going on. You trust me, right? Put your faith in me. Fear me. Trust me. Have your allegiance ultimately in me. Look at chapter 40, starting in verse 15. One of my favorite chapters. Chapter 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Did you hear that? Yeah, one preacher, one time, he said, you know, you have like a five-gallon bucket, you know, and all the water is gone out of it, except for in the very bottom, in the corner, there's a one little drop, and and, and you kind of tip it up like this, and, and you wait for it, kind of shake it a little bit, and that, that drop kind of runs down the inside, and it gets to the lip, and then, think drops off. God says, all the nations in all the world, they're like a drop from a bucket, We get so caught up in them, don't we? We get so caught up in what's going on and we get so caught up in how great or how horrible these nations are. And God says, wait, you need to put things in perspective. And the thing that puts everything in perspective is worship. To know how big your God is. Know how great your God is. Know how glorious your God is. And you need to compare everything to him, and realize that in comparison, the nations are as a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't even suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him, look at what God's word says, as less than nothing, right? And emptiness. You could say, our country is beautiful, our country is wonderful, and I love it. Yes, absolutely, I agree with you. Our country is wonderful, and I love it. But you could also say something like, a ladybug is beautiful. I agree, a ladybug, compared to other bugs, a ladybug is beautiful, right? But you start comparing a ladybug to Mount Everest, or the Grand Canyon, or your kids, or your wife, a ladybug is nothing, right? It's not beautiful in comparison to those things. See, Sometimes we get so enamored with the things of this world. We get so fearful about the things in this world that, that they, they cloud our entire field of vision. Sometimes I say, you know, my thumb is bigger than the moon. 
And you say, what? How can your thumb be bigger than the moon? I, I, I promise, I measured it, right? I put my thumb up there, and I held it up to the moon, and my thumb was bigger than the moon, right? No. Your thumb's just so close to your face, it looks big, right? Your thumb doesn't even compare to the size of the moon. These nations are less, less than nothing in comparison. And if we would devote ourselves to God and we would worship God and we would pour God's word into our minds and to our hearts, we would realize that as great as these nations are, as mighty as they are, as big as they are, as glorious as they are, they are less than nothing compared to our mighty God. Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that won't rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that won't move. I mean, you've got to have a base for your idol, otherwise it'll topple over. It's so weak and little, right? And you're going to worship that? He said, well, I don't do that, Wes. I don't have any idols. And Wait, wait. Does history not teach us? That kingdoms come and go. The kingdoms and nations and empires, they topple like that. The people of Isaiah's day couldn't imagine Assyria falling. Couldn't imagine Assyria being destroyed. And God said, just wait, hold on. You'll see, they're nothing. You think, well, Egypt will save us. No, stop, they're nothing too. They're all nothing. They're less than nothing. They come and they go. Trust in me. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are these leaders planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Uh, Look at the stars, in other words, and see who created those. He who brings them out, their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God? God's not going to take care of us. God's not going to deliver us. God's not going to help us. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait for the Lord, right? Wait for the Lord. Just trust Him. When you're afraid or when you're not afraid and you're feeling powerful and strong, just stop. 
cower before, bow before, and wait on, and wait for the Lord. He's the one who's strong. He's the one who's mighty. He's the one who will give you strength. Not the things of this world. The greater we feel about the things of this world, the more we need to remind ourselves of these facts. The more I love my country, I ought to say, I love my country, but it's less than nothing compared to my God. I love this place. I love Texas. I love this town. I love these people. But compared to God, less than nothing. It will change everything. It will change the way we worship. It will change the way we live. It will change the, what kind of citizens we are. It will change how easy we are to get along with. Look at Isaiah 45, starting verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Things are scary. Things are uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. And we're afraid of what might happen. It's so very easy to turn to someone or something that looks strong, that looks like it can deliver us, that looks like it's mighty. Maybe it's a nation. Maybe it's just an idea. Maybe it's an ideal. And we take those ideas and ideals or nations or militaries or whatever it is, or maybe elected officials, and we make them ultimate things. And we say, you will save me. You will provide for me. You will protect me. But God's people have to be different. God's people have to resist that temptation. It's fine to acknowledge the good things that we see in the world, right? If you see something beautiful, you ought to say, that's beautiful. Thank you, God, for that beautiful thing. That's wonderful. Thank you, God, for that wonderful thing. But the more beautiful you think it is, the more wonderful you feel that it is, the more awe you have of it, the more you ought to remind yourself That next to God, these things are like dust on the scales. They're like grasshoppers in God's sight. They're like a drop from a bucket. They are nothing. They are less than nothing. Your relationship with God depends on you putting things in that right perspective. Nations come and go. But the kingdom of God and God himself will reign forever. Amen? And that's why our ultimate allegiance belongs to the Lord. And so we may pledge allegiance and make promises to and and love and be devoted to the things of the world, but not in the same way, not in an ultimate way. When we recognize the greatness and the glory of God, we realize that other things, they pale in comparison. Just think, What kind of wonderful people we will be to be around. Think of how the world will love to be around us when we have things in this right perspective, right? They'll say, well, don't you have political opinions? Yes, I have political opinions. Don't you have somebody that you want to be in office? Of course I have people I want to be in office. Well, why don't you care about that? I do, just not compared to how much I care about God and His kingdom. And so I don't get all worked up the way everybody else gets worked up when their religion is threatened because that's not our religion, right? 
Think about how people will say, I like being around you. You're so even keel. The things that happen in the world and the circumstances and the turmoil of the world don't seem to get you all bent out of shape. Why? Because we stand on the rock that cannot be moved. Our allegiance is to Him, ultimately. Our devotion is to Him. Our hope is in Him. Our trust is in Him. We rejoice in Him. I don't know about you, but i got some work to do on that, don't you? On recognizing the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the beauty of my God and so that everything else in the world pales in comparison. When we're baptized, that's, that's when we begin that journey, isn't it? Where we die to the things of this world and where we're clothed in Jesus and we say, I am making you my everything. Maybe we need to be reminded of our baptism. Maybe some of you need to make that decision for the first time. Or maybe we just need prayers or encouragement. We're in this battle together. But we need to keep reminding ourselves how big God is and how small everything else is by comparison. After our service is over, there's a room in the back where the elders would love to pray with you. You can come forward. We're in this together. We're family. We want to help each other for God to be our all. If we can help you this morning, come forward as we stand and sing.